Welcome to the Northwestern Master of the Arts in Sports Administration Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm Bryce Clinton. We have another outstanding episode this week where I'm joined by Nadia Erickson-Edwards. Nadia currently serves as the Director of Regional Development at the University of Notre Dame. In a role, she works with friends, family, and alumni in San Diego, Santa Barbara, and the Central Coast of California who aspire to make a transformational impact on the mission of the University of Notre Dame. Prior to her role at Notre Dame, Nadia spent several years as a volleyball coach at the college level, including at Ohio University, Ohio State University, and DePaul University, where she spent eight seasons as the head women's volleyball coach. Under her tutelage, multiple players were recognized as all Big East performers, and the team earned the American Volleyball Coaches Association Team Academic Award six times. Nadia is a native of Frankfurt, Illinois, and attended Penn State University for her undergraduate work, where she was a member of the Nittany Lions volleyball team. During her career, the team compiled an impeccable record of 135 and 10, and a conference record of 75 and 5. She was a member of a four-time Big Ten championship team and reached the NCAA finals four times, including one national championship, the first in program history. From Penn State, she received her bachelor's degree from the Schmiel College of Business and Marketing and holds a master's degree in sports administration from Northwestern University. Personally speaking, for me, it was an absolute pleasure to speak with Nadia because she was a student in my course, and it's been amazing to see her continued evolution. So we very much appreciate her time and hope that you all enjoy this interview with Nadia Erickson-Edwards. Nadia, thanks for, for taking the time to join us today. Thank you. I'm, I'm, it's an honor and a pleasure to be here. So, Nadia, I, I want to I want to touch on your your work now, currently at Notre Dame. But but to sort of build up to that, uh, you have quite the the, the past in athletics in, in athletics at a very high level. And so, you know, playing volleyball in college and, and so on. Can you sort of take us back to the the path that sort of got you to this this role that you are today? No, oh, wonderful. So my current role, I actually work in development for Notre Dame. Um, I work as a director of regional development and work with families and friends and alumni of Notre Dame in the Southwest region of California. So those that are in San Diego, Santa Barbara, and then also the Central Coast and just really forging relationships with them, cultivating those relationships. Um, And just in, in the big picture, Uh, I'm working with those who aspire to have a transformational impact on the mission of Notre Dame and all that the university does to be able to do good in the world. Um, And so just happy to do that and and serve in that role um, just in terms of how I got there. Um, It's just um, I've had a long path, like you said, in athletics, and it started off uh, just playing multiple sports as as a, a young athlete, uh, I started at the age of 10 and was exposed to volleyball and basketball and track and really stuck with volleyball. Um, I played club and was recruited um, through the junior national team to, to play at Penn State University. And uh, I love Penn State. I had a, a, a phenomenal experience there. Um, during my four years, I was part of the team to win the program's first national championship. So we had a lot of success. Um, my coach actually just retired a month ago after serving in that role as a head coach for 43 years. So it was just great to have that relationship with him and an ongoing relationship with him. I think and, a lot of success kind of undersells that. I mean, from a, from a program perspective, if you look historically, I think 
again, being not some, someone who doesn't uh, have their finger on the pulse of, of collegiate volleyball, but I certainly understand the the, the prowess of, of Penn State in, in that regard. Yeah, no, it was, um, again, like I said, it was a, a phenomenal experience and I would have never done it. If I had to do it back all over again, I would have chose the same path. Um, and I think it just kind of opened up some doors for me. I, you know, I was able to continue my playing career. Um, I played professionally for three years um, here in the States for the USPV league, which was a league that kind of um, came together rather quickly um, over the course of three years. And um, then, you know, obviously there's been a lot of um, stoppages and starts and restarts to try and, and build that, you know, type of community and, an opportunity for women to play professionally here in the States. Um, but when the league folded, I went overseas and I played in Spain for a year. And then I also played in Switzerland. And when I came back, then that was when I really started to think about what's going to be the next step. I did my undergrad degree um, in business and marketing. And, but I was really tied to sports. I had such a great experience. And it was really the people who shaped and mentored me. Um, that, that gave me such a great experience that I wanted to be able to do that for the next generation of student athletes. And so I entered the profession of coaching and started off my career coaching as an assistant coach at uh, Ohio University in Athens. And I was there from 2005 to 2007. Um, a MAC program that was able to be on the map rather quickly and go to the NCAA tournament and advance to the Sweet 16. And that, again, opened up some doors for me and my staff to transition a little bit north in Columbus and back in the Big Ten uh, at Ohio State University. And I was there from 2007 to 2010. And we had a great run there in the NCAA tournament as well. And um, just opened up some doors for me to come back to Chicago, where I'm from. I'm from Frankfurt, Illinois, the suburbs, um, to be at the helm of DePaul University. So it was my first opportunity to be a head coach, and I was pretty excited about that. And um, so many different feelings through those eight years. I learned so much. Um, there's, you know, a lot of risk reward. Obviously, that's a high risk, high reward uh, position. But you know, I think the the bottom line was I just had the foundation to be able to to be that mentor and to advocate for young female student athletes in the sport. Uh, and and I really love that position. Um, but I think after being there for eight years, I was just thinking, what next? You know, I really wanted to make sure I was continuing to personally and professionally grow. And I thought about sports administration. I thought about being on the other side. So coaching at that level gave me that platform again to, you know, have that influence on student athletes in their formative years. But I was thinking from an administrative standpoint that I could do more and not just for the 15 to 17 student athletes in my program, but for female student athletes, for male student athletes that encompass, you know, the university. So I uh, decided to go back to school, enrolled in the SPS program at Northwestern and uh, received my master's degree from Northwestern uh, in sports administration in 2019. And just was thinking, okay, how do I get to this step? And I even remember this in classes, like took a lot of classes in terms of, you know, um, technology and sports, um, you know, law, sports law and marketing and a lot of things that were very important to learn about the administrative piece in sports. But I think the one thing that wasn't really talked about a lot was the development or fundraising piece. 
And I, I knew just after spending a lot of time speaking with colleagues, mentors, those that have gone before me, those that have transitioned from being a coach to maybe an athletic director or senior women's administrator, their pathway were a few different things. One was law. Um, so the legal side of things, um, and a lot of it was fundraising. Just being able to fundraise for a university, for an athletic department, was one of the um, foundations of, of a lot of coaches or a lot of administrators who then took on a program in the Power Five, which was basically my big picture goal. Um, so I really started off just, you know, trying to have as many conversations around fundraising as possible. I did a little bit of fundraising as a head coach. Um, I was more the face of the program, so more talking about the program's needs and connecting with our donors in that space, but not ma making those asks. So just really trying to um, build my skill set and talk about the parallels maybe in recruiting, talk about the parallels in, you know, developing relationships with families and our recruits and how that's not really a turnkey situation. That's more of like a four-year to six-year commitment in terms of investing in these individuals and these families. Um, and just having a little bit of a sales background and marketing background, I think helped too. And certainly the personality, but started looking for those opportunities. And uh, lo and behold, I ended up here at Notre Dame. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to see that path. And you can see, as you mentioned, how all those stops kind of play into that, right? You can see a logical progression from there's some level of fundraising and in, in coaching and, and, and understanding sort of how people interact with that. I guess for me, for the layperson in some ways, or, or, or the listeners as well, I know what development means at its, at its most macro level, but can you sort of describe uh, someone such as yourself that's in development and fundraising for a university, uh, what that entails? I mean, what, day, what is the day-to-day -day like from that development perspective? You know, I th that's a good question. I think the day-to-day -day, um, routine, it really is making your connections, building up your connections. And so, yes, the ultimate goal is each and every single fundraiser has their own major gifts goal. Um, you know, to, to bring into the university and the university has its own goal um, just in terms of what's going to enable the university to continue to do business at a high level, um, to be able to recruit students and quality faculty and staff members and keep the university not just running, but competitive. Um, so day to day, with that being in mind, um, there's a lot of flexibility in this role. You know, I, I probably will have a lot of meetings um, that are set in my schedule to continue to develop me as a fundraiser, um, to continue to learn about the academy, because that's really important that you can align yourself with what you're talking about when you're talk talking with donors. It's probably important to them that they're um, relating to somebody who's a trusted advisor or an advocate from the university or a conduit. And, and that's what I can see myself. So. Uh, learning that information is, is basically a lot of the day-to-day -day operations, but connecting with um, those families that are in your portfolio. Um, that's reaching out via email, uh, phone calls, text if uh, donors are comfortable in that space, um, setting up meetings to kind of really talk and develop that conversation. I like meetings in person just because you get a chance to get to know more about the donor and they get a chance to get to know about you um, as an individual. 
Um, if you can't get to that point, setting up Zoom calls to be able to continue the conversation going. I think that that's really important in this space, especially in this COVID world that we're living and where there's a lot of ebbs and flows and up and downs and things like that where people are comfortable one day meeting in person and maybe the next day that changes. Um, yeah, so very, it does yeah. seem very fluid in that yeah. sense. I mean, I think that so much of life has become that way, right? And we've had to adjust to a lot of those things. I also think I, if I was you, it, understanding the areas that you cover for, uh, you know, I would certainly want to be in person too at this time of year in, in the Midwest because getting to Southern California would be be very nice. But I think, you know, you made an interesting point around how those things are very fluid. They shift and change, right? One day it may be, you want to meet in person one day, it may be over Zoom. Talk about the difficulty. I mean, is that difficult? You're in a scenario where you're asking someone to donate money, right? And it would seem that you would want that human contact or understand in person because you are giving away something, you would want that feeling. But has that been a hindrance, you know, in, in your role today? I have not seen it so far. And, and I think that is a good question. I think if we look at the university in the last year and actually when we were pretty much in COVID and, and we had a lot of, you know, shutdowns and um, things like that, the giving actually continued and it increased. Um, and, I, and I think it, it is just because, you know, the portfolio of individuals and families that we are working with have a great understanding of philanthropy and how important it is. And, and I think that when you're working with those who already understand how important philanthropy is, you're already in a great space. Um, so I think in the annual giving space, it's more of inviting, um, you know, uh, maybe teaching the importance of, but I think when you're in this space, it's more of, there's already that knowledge, there's already that giving history, um, you know, and that commitment to philanthropy in that space. Um, I also think, you know, a lot of universities were in need, you know, it wasn't just Notre Dame University or the University of Notre Dame. I think just in terms of that critical need for testing, for, you know, students to be able to continue their education, for that transformation to go from online back to in-person, um, that critical need really uh, helped donors to just say, I'm going to step up and I'm just going to be able to be that person to, to be able to make a difference, whether it's a small difference or, you know, a large difference. I think just being able to have that opportunity to, to make an impact in a critical time was important to all our donors. So we did continue to see that, that change in a positive manner um, during COVID, uh, which I think is very promising. And, and now, you know, there's been a lot of different things like the end of the year um, for tax implications or tax benefits. We see a lot of you know, donors that are, are very well advised uh, financially and they understand the importance of, of giving um, uh, to be in that space as well. So, it, you know, it's just really, you know, my job is, is more of, like I said, being the conduit, but like really more connecting them with their passion and where it may lie within the university. And, and once those things come into alignment, then they can probably see how, you know, much of an impact they can make through philanthropy. Yeah, it's really interesting to see. And it's, I mean, like you said, it's, it's promising to, to see that that has continued. You could almost see too how, you know, before we started recording, you and I are talking about sometimes how we can get Zoom fatigue sitting here doing this. 
but, but you can also see how it gives you some economies of scale of meeting with people and getting in front of them in the sense that if you're making trips to Southern California all the time to see specific sets of people, it, that is more of a, a commitment of your time than it would be to do several of, of these types of things, you know, on a daily basis. Absolutely. So interestingly, you talk back about your playing career, but then parlaying that into coaching. You mentioned playing professionally. Going back to that, do you think that there is an appetite for professional volleyball in in this country? It fascinates me because you and I have talked a lot about volleyball, and, and we'll get more into that because I learn, it, you know, for the listeners. Nadia was in my my course, the course that I teach at Technology of Sport, uh, a couple of years ago now, um, several years ago now, I guess, um, twenty nineteen. You graduated, but when she was in my class, it really opened my eyes to how a lot of these things that we talk about from a technology perspective that are typically applied to football, baseball, basketball, hockey, in some regards, soccer, it could be applied to a different sport. And it was really cool to see how those things could be applied to a different sport. And so it gave me more of a a view into volleyball. But I wonder, do you think there is or will ever be that appetite for, you know, professional volleyball, whether it's men's or women's or, or, you know, in, in this country? Yeah, I absolutely do. And I fully support it. I think going back to the days when I was playing here in the States, and I would say that there's a comparison to those who are able to play for our national team, albeit just a small group of of women, not a league, but maybe 12 to 19 players or 20 players um, that are able to be here in front of their families and life continues the way that they um, are accustomed to. And they, they get to do this amazing thing, which is, you know, playing the sport that they love at the highest level. Um, I, I think that that's, that's great in itself. Um, when you go overseas, I think volleyball is, is as large as club, you know, here. It, it's a very large sport internationally, and the influence is great. I, I think just in terms of this is one of the areas that I touched on in my final paper for Northwestern, my final project was being able to bring that league back um, to the United States because um, the the level of volleyball and the tenacity internationally, I think volleyball is ranked um, two or three internationally behind what we call, um, you know, soccer, but football overseas and, you know, a few other sports. Um, but I think just in terms of being able to incorporate things here, it's now happening. And, and that's the excitement. When I was writing my final project for Northwestern, it was, this would be great if we could do that because, um, you know, the foundation of volleyball right now at the youth level, women's volleyball has superseded women's basketball. So now you've got, hmm. you know, young female players choosing more than one or two sports, which I think is amazing for all sports, whether you support the basketball side, the volleyball side, or the soccer side, I think it's just great to be able to expose our youth to many different options. Um, and with that being said, you know, volleyball is now being a little bit more prime time on TV. You know, so just getting that attraction, that interest from first time viewers, the commentary is important to kind of explain the game and just to draw in those first time viewers so that they come back, you know, and that they really buy into. The, the programming and, and the sport altogether. But I think just in terms of all those things coming together, we have that and we have the sponsors. And, you know, I, I 
thought about, you know, what other leagues are, you know, up and coming? Is it women's soccer? Is it the PLL for, you know, uh, lacrosse? And how are they, they doing things? And how are they traveling? And how are they getting that TV exposure and that buy-in? Um, and I think there's a league right now, um, it's Athletes Unlimited, that are sponsoring several different sports, volleyball included. And last spring was their first spring that they took off. And now this is the fifth attempt, I think, of having a league in the States for women's volleyball. And the way that they're putting things together and the timing of it, I think the timing of it is more critical than anything. You know, um, we all hope that this is something that's going to be sustainable. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think one of the reasons I asked the question is you see leagues like the the National Women's Soccer League, right? And Chicago has a team, you know, the team in Los Angeles, huge growth and, and, and by most metrics really successful. And, and you also see that, you know, in, in these current times, the last two years, you know, some sports, uh, the NFL, the NBA at certain times took ratings hits, uh, but uh women's sports like the WNBA continue to grow. They can continue to have more viewership and, and more engaged fans. But I think that kind of puts it to add to your points of some of these convergence of factors. I also think that the avenues that we have to consume content outside of being there in person are much bigger today, right? Ten, Even 10 years ago, to, to put something like, you know, I have a great example from my day-to-day life around cricket. Right. Cricket is an enormous sport globally, but they here in this country, ESPN didn't want to put that on primetime television, right, on ESPN or ESPN2. And so they made it a streaming option a long time ago. And it had huge, huge numbers. And so you see now the ability to consume that in that way. I I hope that that's another factor that could could play into that, because I do think it's a really, you know, as a personal story, I I lived in in London during the, the 2012 Olympics. And for anybody that doesn't know, if you live in the city where the Olympics are hosted, you can get tickets really easy the day of because people, uh, corporate sponsors and stuff don't show up. And I went to volleyball all the time, whether it was beach volleyball, indoor men's, women's, because it was exciting. Really, it was an exciting sport to watch in person. There was a lot of it's fast moving and, and those types of things. And so I think it's packaged as a, a product for consumers. It could be really fun. No, no, absolutely. And I always love that, you know, just being back in your class, just talking about the different ways that people consume sports and how that is forever changing and how it is, you know, basically from the comfy couch that we all sit on and and how we just, you know, can flip through, you know, different um, TVs and things like that or, or different devices and and be able to consume sports in that way. And I think that that's that's an additive. That's a positive thing um, for a lot of international sports to be able to encompass, um, you know, our, our, I think, generation and our and our population for sure. Yeah. If you take that even a step further, if you look at the way younger fans consume sports. I, I was listening to an interview with Mark Cuban not that long ago. He was talking about how his son consumes Mavericks games. He said he doesn't sit down in front of the television to watch the game and end. He'll watch a few things on TikTok and he'll watch, you know, House of Highlights on Instagram, which I actually think bodes really well for a sport like volleyball because those moments and those highlights can be packaged up really well, really cool and, and get people engaged. So, you know, I think there's an interesting avenue for that uh, for, you know, from a consumption perspective overall. Yeah, I, I smile when you say that because I think people in my generation are, are not TikTokers, but those who are in the sport of volleyball 
have slowly transitioned over to the other side. <laughs> so they understand from a recruitment standpoint, the relationships that they build with the recruits and their families, that's important. And that's what they do too. Um, but just in terms of like being able to be in, in that space um, with that generation, how important it is to be able to transition over to TikTok. So, yeah. And speaking of that generational piece of it, you know, thinking back and relating to those generations and so on, that is obviously a big part of, of the coaching piece, right? And you spent a lot, a, a lot of your career coaching. And I guess the top level question for me is, do you miss that? Do you miss the, the being around volleyball every day and, and, and immersed in it and, and coaching young people? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. There, there certainly are a lot of elements that I do miss. Um, there are so many elements that are continuing to change. You know, that that's why I feel like just being able to insert myself eventually in that administration piece, I think, has been my long term goal. But is is now I I continue to think about that every single day, just in terms of if you you look at, um, you know, the transfer portal and recruiting and, and not just, you know, basketball, but volleyball, you know, there's there's so many. And, and I think, you know, COVID has played a large part in that just in terms of how many athletes are entering it because they have that COVID year and, you know, they might have their fifth year or things like that. Um, you know, a name, image and likeness and how all that just really um, touches on sport and, and the changing things. But, you know, I, I well, think what it's comes- an interesting question for you. I'm sorry to interrupt yeah. you, but you bring that up as and you are a very unique person to to ask this question to because you are an elite level athlete in a, in a very high profile program in a sport, you know, if you think of, of women's volleyball at the collegiate level, you often think of Penn state, right? How does that sit with you now that someone in that position could make money off their name, image, and likeness where you, when you were in your playing days, right? I'm sure that there were some struggles in, in some of those things. I, I you know, I have lots of friends that were college athletes and, you know, they, they had scholarships and they, they did just fine, but they were there, you know, some things were hard because they couldn't make money otherwise because of the time commitments that were there. So it's, it's interesting to see the view. It would be interesting to hear the view of someone who was, who lived that. Uh, yeah, I've got some opinions. <laughs> I think it's quite interesting because yes, um, I did play in a time where we, we played for the name on the back of our Jersey and not to negate the passion of players today, because I still think that that's there, but we did not have the extras. We didn't have the cost of attendance. We didn't have, and, and, and quite frankly, I think when you look at your um, full day or your week or your month schedule, or even in season um, academics and athletics do take up all your time. So the opportunity to have an extra job or another source of income to supplement the things that you may need that are not covered with your scholarship um, or maybe even out of season, there's still that commitment that maybe in your head, you're thinking I've got more time because we're not in season, but it's still not enough time to get a consistent job. Um, Yeah. Most athletes do in terms, you know, not, I wouldn't say suffer or struggle, but it it, it is um, that discipline factor that you have to lean into. Um, you know, I, I do like the cost of attendance because I think that just in terms of wherever you choose to go to school, you know, if you're going to school in the city of Chicago, it's going to be a little more expensive than if you're, you know, maybe someplace in Southern Illinois and that's in the same state. So just in terms of being able to keep up with, you know, the cost of a gallon of milk or, you know, whatever it might be that you need um, to be able to to accelerate 
or excel, you know, while you're in school. I, I think that that's a good thing. The the cost of you know being able to play or pay athletes, um, and and how do you do that? And how do Title IX implications come in? And you know, I, I think it's it's very complex. Um, I I just worry about you know maybe the future of this and you know, are we all on the same page, number one, and, and maybe where um, the, the blueprint is, you know, where are the organizational pieces? Is it coming from the top down or are universities going to continue to ha- implement their own insight and, and, you know, just be able to really, I don't know, manage that in that space? Because if that's the case, then I think that there's going to be some implications on parity. Um, yeah, and recruiting. that's a really good point, right? The parity piece. And, and not only you mentioned from a university level, but there's, it, it can go even higher than that, right? The state from a legislature level, from a, from a federal government, you know, dictating those things down. I think that that's a really interesting part of it. And I asked, you know, a big reason to ask that is that it's such a prevalent topic today, right? And, and you see it not only from the transfer portal, right? You mentioned that, right? There's a lot of students that could potentially be transferring to get, you know, more opportunity. But I was reading an interesting study about how, you know, we're thinking of this in weird terms of, oh, a lot of these students are going to make a ton of money. There's going to be a handful of them that do, right? But for someone, you know, a, a player in a sport like football or basketball or women's basketball or those things, you know, the lesser known nationally, but maybe very known locally, has the opportunity to make some of that walking around money, right? That like you mentioned in the off season, you really don't have time for a, a retail job if you're if you're a division one college athlete and, and it could give the opportunity to have some of those those things. So you're right though, it's 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 fraught with um, it, it has to be implemented properly, to, I think from a parity perspective. And we'll see we'll certainly see how it evolves. Does that come up at ever from a development perspective in your conversations with, you know, potential donors or the impacts on the university or, or the impacts on student athletes, does that ever come up? Is it, is it part of, of the sort of talk track? Oh, absolutely. I, I think I get asked that question more often than not. I mean, you know, some donors are, you know, very much uh, interested in sports and, and some aren't, you know, um, I, I don't work particularly in sports, I work for the university. So I, I get a healthy mix of both. But I do think for those who are interested in sport, it does come up a lot because, you know, maybe they they are interested in terms of what the university, like what stance are we going to take? Because, you know, maybe it might be a little bit more conservative than other schools. Um, you know, so when it comes to apples and apples or not apples and oranges, or if you're doing things a little bit differently, then, then again, it, it, it comes down to that um, parity piece, you know, um, so those are conversations. I haven't really had donors specifically say, I want to, you know, um, make a commitment financially to a certain student athlete. But I think those are, there's a lot more spaces to the education around it too. So internally, what can you do within the university? Can you, um, you know, raise funds to hire a full-time position for somebody to be staffed, to monitor, to uh, educate, um, to, you know, immerse themselves in, in knowledge that it's coming from the NCAA and, you know, the, the top down so that they can educate our student athletes and, and our student athletes can reap the benefits because I think Notre Dame fully supports student athletes being able to be in this space. But I think it's more on that side. 
And you can see some place like Notre Dame where students across sports would have the ability to, to, you know, it's a weird, it's a weird way to phrase it in profit from their name, image, and likeness. But I mean, that's essentially what it is because Notre Dame is such a high profile place and, and a lot of high profile athletes and, and those types of things. But I guess back to the coaching and sort of how that parlays into what you do today, do you do you see a lot of those things from your coaching days carry over into what you do from a development perspective, whether it's the approach you take with potential donors or just the understanding of the landscape? Yeah, I think absolutely both. You know, I, I think um, the recruitment of my colleagues, we are all very different just in terms of what we've done to this point. You have people who have sales experience, you have people who have uh, legal experience or management experience or sport experience. So how we all approach might be very different on a day-to-day basis. There is no right or wrong pathway to get into this role or right, or I would say, you know, preferred or not preferred approach. Um, because at the end of the day, it has to be authentic. If I were to use somebody else's style of play and make an ask in a sales way, it's not going to come across as being authentic. And I think I would lose out in that sense. So I take the approach of being a former coach and putting myself as sitting across, you know, a student athlete and their parents in their living room and, you know, selling the benefits of my program and why you should be a part of that. And and that recruiting space has really helped me to cultivate those relationships that are personal. And, you know, maybe that's sending birthday cards or maybe that's checking in and just asking how life is and how your, you know, kiddos are doing, you know, but just really, um, you know, cultivating personal relationships that um, you're you're really building that relationship off of trust and trust goes a long way. Um, And I think once, you know, somebody trusts you, then they will allow you to, you know, lead them in a direction or tell them, you know, you know, what it is that the university needs from you. um, And and it'll go a long way. So I I just, I really kind of go back to the coaching role and developing relationships truly um, with individuals and family. Which makes a ton of sense, right? I mean, I I think that if you, if you step back from it completely, the building of relationships is so central to so many things, from a work perspective, right? In, in roles that you would have, you know, whether that's coaching, whether that's development or, or sales, as you, as you mentioned. So you certainly see where that, that parlays into it. But what's, what's also interesting is that, you know, a lot of our listeners are former student athletes or current student athletes. And I think what's really interesting, and a lot of times they ask the questions about how do, how do I parlay these skills that I've learned as a student athlete and, and not only the skills, but the time commitment, the, the ability to balance things and so on into, you know, a role going forward. And I think that you kind of, they're just outlined really great ways that those are applicable because that's a unique experience as a, as a student athlete to be able to have those, you know, that you can apply going forward. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I would say that. I also would say that competitiveness, that helps too. You know, yeah. I, I definitely wouldn't want to, you know, leave without saying that because I think what is ingrained in most student athletes, all student athletes to be able to not, you know, just be able to commit to their sport, but to be good at it is that level of competitiveness. And you know, at times it is a numbers game. I get up and I check the numbers every morning because I want to win. You know, like it, it, that's from a personal perspective and that's from a team perspective as well. You know, just to be able to to have that buy-in 
to what it is that you see in the big picture and and just to be able to work every single day toward that goal. Um, I think that that's one of those, you know, innate qualities that student athletes have that, you know, on top of time commitment and you know, teamwork and, you know, building relationships, that level of competitiveness is going to serve our student athletes, you know, well in, in all that they do. It's a really interesting point because, you know, some of uh, friends of mine that were, were athletes and in, in a previous life and, I think sometimes they struggle to find, you know, I, I know a lot of, of friends of mine that play football or basketball in, in college that turn to doing things like playing cards, like playing poker, right? Because they, they could still get that, uh, you know, competitive piece in it. But it's, it is really interesting how you point to, you know, the competitive piece of it and you can drive that competition like you do in, in you spoke about in, in your daily job. Absolutely. So as you evolve and see these things, you know, from a development perspective in your work at Notre Dame, college athletics in general, you know, as, as we look forward, what are some sort of key, key trends or, or things that you've seen from a university perspective that, that listeners might be interested in or that, that, that we think could be becoming that could impact whether it's the university setting overall or, or, or college sports in general? Yeah, I, I think um, one of the things that I'm learning is that as times change, universities change, and they're keeping up with trends, um, you know, nationally, internationally, uh, globally. And I think, you know, from our perspective of, if you think about some of our donors who are, you know, well into their 70s or 80s or things like that, some of those, you know, there might be that concern of, you know, at Notre Dame, like, are we Catholic enough? You know, are, are we, are we continuing to do the things that, and uphold the things that this foundation was built upon or, you know, the university was built upon like those things. Um, but, but I think change is a good thing, you know, just being able to, um, the university, of, even if I went back to Penn state, I would say the university that I played at, that I went to school is different. It's, it's more advanced. There's more technology. There's no, there's more buildings on campus. There's more research. There's higher quality of faculty and staff. And I see that as a good thing, but, you know, I think sometimes when we look at, you know, maybe things of the past to the present, um, I, I think, you know, just how we accept change and how we adapt to change and how we see change, um, you know, it, it could hinder or it could help. Um, you know, your relationship with the university that, and I say that because I'm not in specifically athletics right now, you know, I I intend on getting back, but I think from the university perspective, I think that's a large thing right now. No, it's a really good point. And I I think it's a really good approach to not only the university setting, not only college athletics setting, but especially this current time in life, you know, the ability to shift and change and be valuable is, is, is really important. So I think that's, you know, it's a, it's a good way to end it. It's a good way, good high note to say, Hey, you know, be flexible in, in those types of things. But, but Nadia, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and your insights today. And it, it's great to see you and it's great to catch up. And I know that, that this will be really beneficial for the listeners. 
Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be here. I absolutely loved this course and this class. And, uh, you know, to all of those that are coming up, I, you know, I just, just a small but just stay the course. I know like I graduated in 2019 and like our conversation before in 2020, sort of the pandemic and there was a full year of, you know, um, hiring freezes and things like that. But just invest in your in your work, invest in your colleagues and your mentors and just stay the course in all that you do and best of luck in your endeavors. That's really sound advice. So thank you so much, Nadia. Thank you.